Good evening, good evening everyone. Welcome to, to Beit Avichai. Um, you know, I, I have to do all kinds of different introductions, but tonight is really a, a, an exceptional, a distinct uh, pleasure and an honor for me to have a teacher come to a place that you work, and a teacher that actually shows us how much a person has to care about his students and love his students like his children, sets an example for, I think, many of us that had the privilege of being students of Robert Brabender for many years. So for us, it's, uh, it's really a distinct honor and a pleasure for Rabbi Brahminder to speak here this evening on the topic of Asara B'tevet. That's it? <laughs> the topic is Asara B'tevet. And the issue is the issue is, what exactly are we fasting about on Asarabatevet? What is the event in history that caused us to fast? So if you look at uh, the sources that you have in front of you, the first one, the first one is a Pasukim Lachimbet, which says as follows, Nebuchadnezzar is a, an important name in Jewish history. He is God's agent to do bad things to the Jewish people. Now through the history, there have been a lot of people who vied for this crown. God's agents to do bad things to the Jewish people. But Nebuchadnezzar was one of the first. After Paro, Nebuchadnezzar. What did he do? Melech Bavel, he was the king of Bavel, Babylonia. He came up against Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim apparently was a strongly fortified city. There was a wall around Yerushalayim that was hard to penetrate. So what he did was, I looked it up, the word. I know what it is. I just don't know what it's called in English. So I looked it up. And in the dictionary that I looked it up in, it said, siege wall. Which made me think that whoever wrote the dictionary also didn't know what the word in English should be. A siege wall. In other words, in order to get through the wall, you have to knock it down. In order to knock it down, you have to pummel it with big stones. In order to pummel it with big stones, you've got to build some kind of a structure which enables you to throw the stones down or to use some kind of an elementary machine to throw the stones against the wall. And that's a daik. So the pasuk in Malachim says that Nebuchadnezzar built this daik. And forever after, forever after, we're fasting because he built this wall. Or they built this wall around the wall which enabled him to conquer Yerushalayim ultimately. And it's hard for me to understand. 
it's hard for me to understand why we celebrate the building of the wall when we are ultimately going to fast on Tisha B'Av. I mean, isn't it true that fasting on Tisha B'Av takes care of the issue of the Churban Beit HaMikdash? I mean, that's what we suffer for and think about and have thought about all these years. Why Asara B'Tevet? What is building the wall around the wall, building the daik around the wall, cause me forever after to fast? Now you could say, thinking, you could say, as some have said, that you know, everything has a beginning. And the beginning and the end should not be confused. And after all, it's true that Tisha B'Av was the end. It was the destruction. It was the ultimate. But it was not the beginning. And the beginning, we say, was Asara B'Tevet. And the beginning is also important. It's a lesson. It's a lesson for us all. We know that things happen to us. But they sometimes have a history. And if we ignore that history, we don't really understand what happened. So maybe that's Asara B'Tevet. Maybe Asara B'Tevet is the beginning of it. I don't know. It seems to me that Chazal recognized this idea that everything has the beginning, has a beginning. And when they asked themselves, what was the beginning of Tish Abba'av? Well, it was the first time in history that Tish Abba'av, Tish Abba'av, not a Sarabbatevet, that Tish Abba'av was declared a special day. So you know that that was when the Meraglim, the spies, came back from Eretz Yisrael and caused Am Yisrael to cry in the desert. And that was the beginning of it. That was the first Tisha B'Av. So Chazal said, you know, Tisha B'Av, the destruction of the temple, the end game. That's the end. But where did it start? Where did it come from? Chazal said, well, it came from this denial of Eretz Yisrael. From this attempt to say that if we don't follow exactly the way God wants us to go, that'll be to our advantage. That's what happened with the Meraglim, with the spies. And so Tisha B'Av, when we fast on Tisha B'Av, we're fasting. We're fasting because there is some, something wrong, something that has never been righted. And that's what the Pasuk in the Torah say. I'm not going to mention it. But when God mentions, when God punishes us throughout history, it says in the Torah, when we are punished for what we do that we should not have done, that punishment includes a little bit of the chayta maraglim, the, the sin of the spies. So Tisha B'Av does have a beginning. Tisha B'Av begins with the chayta of the maraglim, but not a sarabbat 
not Asura B'Tevei. So I've left, I'm left with that question. What is it exactly that we fast about on Asura B'Tevei? What is the historical context in which this is so important? Now, if you look at the sheet, this is called the sheet. <laughs> the sheet, is it printed on both sides or you have two sheets? Both sides? Every side they tried to save a little money and print it on both sides. Okay. Everybody's got to earn a living. So at the bottom of the page, there is a quote from a book called the Abudraham. Abudraham lived in the 14th century. He was a, one of the Rishonim, an important, an important commentator. And he wrote a book which is basically a commentary on Tfilot and Mo'adim, on the prayers that we say throughout the year, and on the various holidays that we, uh, that we celebrate. And the book is called Abudraham, after him. It's, that was his name. So Abudraham says this. He's talking about the Arba'at Somot. Arba'at Somot, you know that uh, the prophet... Zechariah mentioned that there are four tzomot, we'll see it presently. So the Abu Raham says this, Chiluk yesh beinehem. The four tzomot are not all the same. But you have to carefully think about each one. He says, She'arbat ha-tzomot heim nidachim lefamim she'chalu b'shabbat. We all know, or if you like scratch your head's hard, you'll see that you know that when the calendar said that a tzom, a, a regular kind of fast day, falls on Shabbat, we generally push it off. Whereas we don't give up Shabbat for a fast day. So that's what he says. Yesh bedem Shabbat atzomot hengdi dachim lifamim kshechalu b'Shabbat. They push them off. You push the fast off. You have Shabbat, and then you have the fast. And then he says this, listen. Chutz miasara b'teveit. Chutz miasara b'teveit. Except for this fast that we are talking about, asara b'teveit. She'ino chal leolam b'shabbat. So he says, according to the way we've organized the calendar, you know that our calendar is an organizational feat. It doesn't just happen in the in the time of the. At the time of the Tanaim, and the, the uh, new moon determined the new month. Uh, our calendar works sort of approximately that way, but if you ever in shul, if you ever in shul when they bench Rosh Chodesh, you know that shul, your shul, bench Rosh Chodesh, I have to determine what the audience I'm talking to is. <laughs> so you know there's somebody, somebody gets up and says, the molad is, the molad is, and it's always the wrong day. <laughs> you know, it's, in other words, the reason he announces the molad is because it's not when we celebrate Rosh Chodesh. If it was when we celebrated Rosh Chodesh, there would be hardly any point to announcing the molad, right? Sometimes they announce it in, in Yiddish so that it should be more mysterious. <laughs> but in spite of that fact, in spite of the fact, we have a kind of a fixed calendar that works on a 19-year cycle, and it repeats itself over and over again. 
So according to that fixed calendar, this is what the Abu Draham says. He says, Asarabit never falls out on Shabbat. That's the, that's how it is how it's organized. Never falls out on Shabbat. This year Asarabit is not today. It's not even tomorrow. It's Sunday, right? Asarabit is Sunday. So listen to the Abu Draham. He says, Khusbi Asarabit Sometimes Asara B'Tevet falls out on Friday. So you fast on Friday. You don't move it around. We, we, fast, we fast on Friday. We don't allow, allow it to happen on Friday. Right? Because we're worried about Chilul Shabbat. But when it comes to fasting, I saw Rabbi Tevet on Friday, you figure everybody's too tired to too much Chilul Shabbat, so it's not such a big problem. So he says, Mit Anim Bobayom, we fast on Friday. Now, now the punchline. You ready? Good. Mit Anim Bobayom, Bafilu, Hayachal Bishabbat, Lo Hayu Yecholim Litchoto. But if it would fall on Shabbat, right? In other words, we didn't have the fixed calendar that we use. If we were dependent on seeing the new moon for the new month, and if it were possible for Asarab B'Tevet to fall out on Shabbat, then he says, he the Abu Draham says, Lo ayu yicholim lidchoto liyom acher. We could not push it off to another day. There's a pasuk in Yechezkeel that says, "Be'etzem ayom azeh about Asarab b'Tevet that it's be'etzem ayom on this very day, on this very day, you can't move it." And he says, "Kimo b'Yom Kippurim." Everybody knows that Yom Kippurim sometimes falls out on Shabbat, and when Yom Kippurim falls out on Shabbat, who wins? Yom Kippurim wins. Right? There are several reasons for that. But he says, Yom Kippurim wins because it says, which kind of means, don't move it. Don't move Yom Kippurim. It is what it is. Falls out of Shabbat, falls out of Shabbat. Avol Sha'arat Somot, Einan Chalim Le'olam B'Yom Shishi. But the other Somot, the other fasts, Never, never fall on. Uh, we don't complete the fast on Yom Shishi. So here, the Abu Draham came up with this idea. He said, if it would be possible for Asarab to fall out on Shabbat, we wouldn't have Shabbat. We wouldn't have Shabbat. We wouldn't have Onik Shabbat. We wouldn't have Kavod Shabbat. We wouldn't have Shabbat. We would just have Asarab Tevet. We wouldn't eat. Which turns out to be rather a remarkable comment, because. The interpretation of that comment is that in some way, in some way, Asarab Tevet is the most important, the most significant, the most uh, uh, weighty of the four fasts that we know. And so what we have to look for now is what could the Abu Draham have possibly meant? Now, I don't want to keep any secrets. So I'll just add one point. The Beit Yosef is the name of the commentary that was written by Rabbi Yosef Karo on the tour. Beit Yosef, commentary Rabbi Yosef Karo on the tour. Rabbi Yosef Karo, one of the most 
influential Jews of all time. Right? His knowledge was encyclopedic. His ability to arrange things was wondrous. And he mentions this Abudraham. He mentions this Abudraham, this statement in the Abudraham, and he says, I don't know where he got this from. I don't know where this comes from. And therefore, I don't include it as a regular halakha. I just wanted to mention that. But in fact, the Abu Jahan does say, what, say it. And he says it in a complicated way so that we should not think that it was just some a dream that he had. But it was something that he roots in a drasha, in a pasuk, because it says, Kiba Yom Hazet. So we are interested in following the Abu Draham and trying to understand in what way could this be understood? How could we imagine that the fast of Asarabetevet is somehow more important, more significant, more dominant than the other three fasts? So first, I turn your attention to a pasuk in Haggai. You see number three on the page? Haggai. Haggai was a, the first prophet of Shivat Zion. Shivat Zion, again, the destruction of the first temple is 586 BCE. It's a good date to remember. 586, it's easy. 586 BCE. You know BCE? Yeah, well, good. Am Yisrael returned back to Eretz Yisrael, 535 BCE. It may have been 536 or 534, but it doesn't matter to me. I always say 535. 535, the Jews started to come back to Eretz Yisrael, a small number of Jews. Led by Zerubavel. That was his name. Zerubavel. And the first thing they wanted to do was rebuild the Beit HaMikdash. The first thing that they wanted to do was to work at rebuilding the Beit HaMikdash that had been destroyed, which meant they had to build an altar. And they started building the, finishing the walls around Yerushalayim and then building a wall around the Beit HaMikdash. This all took a lot of time. This all took a lot of time. And the first prophet who came with Shivat Zion, with the return to Eretz Yisrael at that time. His name was Haggai. He was the first prophet. And his book, the book of Haggai, is one of the books of the Treyasa, the 12 small prophets, small books. They're small books. They're not historically connected, but they're, they're all smaller. So they're kind of in a collection called Treyasa. So the pasuk that we're interested in is this. See number three? Chagai looks around and, and the situation was not good. The people were not happy. Poverty was rampant. That was like similar to Eretz Yisrael in the, the beginning of the 20th century. It the situation didn't look good. There was nothing to be overwhelmingly happy about. There was an enemy within, 
and an enemy without. The enemy within were the Samaritans who fought every inch of the way against the Jews building a temple in Yerushalayim and building the wall around Yerushalayim. And inch by inch, literally, Am Yisrael prevailed at that time. But prevailing meant suffering. It meant that they had to tax themselves. They had to lose the money that they might have made working their own, uh, in their own businesses in the, their own land. Instead, what they did was they, they donated time and effort and money into rebuilding the Beit HaMikdash. And so along comes Haggai. And Haggai, he wants to be encouraging. He wants to tell the people that they're doing the right thing, that good things are going to happen. And so he says, here the English, you see the English? What, you, what looks like English on the sheet? It's really English. I'll read it. The glory of the last house shall be greater than the first one. <laughs> Here's Haggai. You imagine the scene. Everybody knows Shlomo HaMelech built a wondrous building. Not only was it a wondrous building, it was filled with miracles. Miracles that happened every single day. Big miracles, small miracles. Those of you who remember the last chapter of Pirkei Avot, there's a Mishnah that says that there were ten miracles that happened in the Beit HaMikdash. We're talking about the Beit HaMikdash of Shlomo HaMelech. And none of these miracles were reproduced. Also, also, in the second temple, there was no Aron Kodesh. No Aron Kodesh. No Luchot. There was no Ark. There were no tablets in the Ark. There was no staff of, of, of our own. There was no man. All the things that were there. But in fact, when the Kohen Gadol went into the Kodesh Kadashim on Yom HaKippurim, in the second temple, what did he see in that room? Nothing. There was nothing in that room except the Evan Shtia. Evan Shtia, this stone which in Chazal conception of things was kind of the bedrock of creation. That's all that was left. The only thing that the Babylonians <coughs> left was that stone that was embedded deeply into the ground. And here comes Haggai, a recognized prophet, a man who is bringing the word of God to B'nai Israel, wants to encourage them. And he says to them, this temple that you are building is going to be greater than the temple of Shlomo HaMelech. Imagine, imagine that he's standing there, you know, standing in Jerusalem. He's walking in the streets. He's getting the people together. And he says, this is going to be the greatest. And the people look at what they built, how, how poor it is, how insignificant it is, how just start-up it is. And, and he says it's going to be the greatest. That it's going to be the greatest. And you know that even though at the end of the period, at the end of the period of the Hashbonaim, it was just Hanukkah, right? The end of the period of the Hashbonaim, the king, be, uh, Herod became king. <laughs> the Herod was not a nice fellow. He was not even too Jewish. And he decided to glorify the temple, to make it bigger, to make it nicer, to make... Okay, that's true, but that was really 
right at the end, right before the destruction of the temple by the Romans. And Herod was a bad guy. Jewishly a bad guy. Okay, he wanted to build a nice building. But it can't be that the temple is a nice building. It's hard to imagine that Haggai was referring to the temple of Herod. And so what was he referring to? I mean, if we assume that Haggai's prophecy was truly a prophecy, and if we assume, if we assume that uh, Haggai knew what he was saying, or he meant something, which, you know, for the purposes of this discussion is the way we will assume. Uh, so what, what was it that Haggai might have been referring to? Okay. So I want to tell you something uh, that the Rambam said. I don't know if we'll read it all, but here you see this uh, number five. You see number five is the Rambam? The Rambam. If you look down in the Rambam to the... Uh, well, well, let's, we'll, we'll do it all uh, uh, quickly. If, if, if the Hebrew is daunting, don't get annoyed. It, it's only Hebrew. <laughs> and it shouldn't be daunting. I'm not sure why we're doing this in English. Oh, there. now I'm sure. <laughs> and we look at the Rambam. The Rambam says in Hilchot Melachim, this part of the Rambam, part of the Rambam was for, for a thousand years censored out of the Rambam and was just returned into the printed editions of the Rambam in the Mosad of Kuk edition of the Rambam. And then since that time, everybody, all the editions of the Rambam include this. So we're now going to learn the censored part of the Rambam. The Rambam says this. This first part is not censored. But after that, I'll tell you where the censored part starts. This is when there's a king in Israel who is interested in mitzvot, like uh, David HaMelech, King David. He says, you know what a Mashiach is? A Mashiach is the one who turns everything right. Who makes everything that should happen, happen. That's what a Mashiach, that's what a Mashiach is. So if there is such a king in Israel, he is the Mashiach. And if he does all the things that we ask for, in Shmona Esra, he rebuilds Shmona Yerushalayim, and he brings all the Jews together, and 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 all the nations of the world accept accept his authority. He's certainly the Mashiach. If he's not successful, or if he dies, and there have been false messiahs in in Jewish history, he says that this is not the promise of the Torah. He's just another king, but he's not the Mashiach. Etc. Etc. So if you look at the next line, the next line, I'm in the sixth line, the third word. This is the part that is censored, that was censored, that is now uncensored. 
Censor, uncensored. Afi Yeshua Hanotsuri. You know who that is? Excellent. Broad general knowledge that's very important. Afi Yeshua Hanotsuri, he says, you know, the Rambam in his own lifetime suffered. Suffered from Christians and suffered from Muslims. For 12 years of his life, his family wandered around in North Africa, worse in Spain than in North Africa, finally ending up in, in Egypt, as you know. And yet he says, Avyeshu Hanotsuri, Shedamai, this, this uh, Nazareth, the person from Nazareth, Shedama, he imagined that he was going to be the Messiah and he was killed in a Jewish baked in. That's what the Rambam says. Daniel, he's already Daniel, who, who was in the exile, right, who lived between the Babylonian exile and the return to Eretz Israel. So it's way before, way before uh, 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 the Nazareth. Right, There's a pasuk that says, There are other. There are those who try to take over, but they failed. The Christians confuse things and they, they, they caused tremendous distress to Am Yisrael and they brought down uh, they, they, we were oppressed because of that and, and so they were really terrible people representing the ideas that he brought into the world Aval and so now here the Hasidish the Rabbah sometimes you can understand the Rabbah in a Hasidish way so the Rabbah says like he's sitting there imagine the Rambam sitting sitting someplace talking to his his uh, his Talmidim and he said well who needed them I mean I mean who needed these Christians what did we gain from Christianity I like that's like the Hasidic way of thinking about things not so much what did they do to us but how did they come to be I mean what purpose did they have what was God thinking so to speak when he allowed this whole thing to happen this whole thing meaning Christianity. Who needs it? So the Rambam says. The Rambam says. V'chiyesh b'chshol gadol mizeh. Shekol nevi'im dibru. I'm sorry. Aval machshavot. It's highlighted. That's why I didn't see it. It's always a problem with highlighting. You see it? Aval machshavot borei olam en koch v'adam lasigam kilo darcheinu derachav v'lo machshavotenu machshavotenu So it's an introduction. You know, when I'm, when I'm going to explain something, so I say, well, I mean, I know I don't really understand it, but this is what I would say. Now that's what the Rambam is doing. The Rambam says, we really, it's really chutzpah in our part to try to understand what God's intention was when something happens in the world. But even though it's a little bit of a chutzpah, I'm going to do it anyway. That's what the Rambam says. I'm going to do it. And listen to the Rambam's idea. The Rambam's idea. Machshivot Adam Adam Right. The Kol Yeshua 
all of these things that happened as a result of Jesus. Does he want to mention Muhammad? You know Muhammad, the most popular name for a baby boy in Israel? Sha'amad Acharav, Muhammad was after Jesus. So I always explain. I always say, well, I learned this wrong. I always say, you know, the world is going to be a better world. And someday, everybody will understand that the Torah is the Torah, and that if you do the mitzvot, it's really better. It's a better life. It's a response. It's a response to divine will. I mean, what could be better than that? But we, we have no time for that. We can't, we have no time to explain that to the world. Because we're too busy learning dafyomi, going to sheyurim, trying to understand this halacha, that halacha. We have time, we have time, we go talk to Goyim about ultimate realities. Who has time for that stuff? So HaKadosh Baruch sent messengers who do that. They do that for us. So he says, what, is, what was the great achievement, the Rambam himself said, what's the great achievement of Christianity? That they declared that the Old Testament is true. Now it may be that they also said that the Old Testament has been surpassed by a New Testament, but you cannot deny, they cannot deny if you ever been in a motel on the road someplace, you know, you open the top drawer, out comes a Gideon Bible. The Gideon Bible has the Old Testament in it. Because that's part of the deal. That is part of the deal, the Old Testament, so that the Christians are the ones, the Christians are the ones who prepared the world for the next world. For the world of the Messiah, according to according to the Rambam, the same thing is true about about Muhammad, who didn't adopt the Old Testament, but many of the stories of the Old Testament, the characters of the Old Testament, the people of the Old, the prophets of the Old Testament, the prophets are included in the Quran, and all of this, according to the Rambam. All of this according to Rambam, so that the messianic era can actually happen. Because, as you know, you can't just cop a new idea because it comes into the world. It doesn't work that way. You have to be prepared. You have to understand. I mean, you can't have, if you didn't know that there was electricity, you wouldn't understand much about computers. Right, you have to know that there's electricity, so everything has its developmental stage, and you have to absorb the material so that the world has to also be aware of the messianic era in its way, in its way, not in the way we are obliged to think about it, but in the way that without them there can be no actual uh, uh, understanding of what is going of what is going on. So about this, remember the Pasuk in Chagai. The Pasuk in Chagai refers to Kavod. And the word Kavod is translated in this English translation as glory. I don't know what glory is. I know what glory is, but I know that if I read a passage that had the word glory in it, 
I would just assume that everybody else understood it at least as well as I, in spite of the fact that I don't know exactly what the word, what the word means. The word kavod, however, is a word that describes the manifestation of God's presence. Even though it's true that God is every place and God can do everything, nevertheless, each person understands that there are some places where his relationship to the presence of God is different, is special, is intense. And for some people, it's the shul they go to. For some people who have the good fortune, it's the Kot of Maravi. For some people, it might be Keber Rachel. Whatever it is, whatever it is it's, it's a legitimate notion that the Kavod of Hashem is found more intensely in some places than in others. This is a legitimate a legitimate idea. And so it may be that what Haggai was referring to was not the way the building looks. And even though the Pasuk, you see in the second, uh, I'm sorry, in, in, uh, in four, in, in, uh, in number four on the sheet is a Pasuk in Malachim where it says, Vatere Malkat Shavah. Malkat you know, was this Ethiopian queen or princess that Shlomo HaMelech married at Kol Chochmat Shlomo she saw how clever Shlomo was and she saw the house she was so impressed by the building that's called the Beit HaMikdash that Shlomo HaMelech built so it may be that Haggai is not referring not referring to the building building by what the building looks like but Haggai is referring to Haggai is referring to the glory of it. That something was was tangible about the building that was built in Bayit Sheni, which surpassed Bayit Rishon. And the question is, what exactly might that have been? And so, if you turn over the page, there's a passage here that is from Rav Kuk. A passage written by Rav Kuk, which I think uh, will help us will help us get through this problem and solve, solve the issue of the Abu Drab. Just a few, few lines. Mi binyana bayit ha-sheni Mi binyana bayit ha-sheni Yatsa ora lumot ha-olam Yoter me-asher me-abayit ha-rishon The Rambam says, I mean Rav Kook says, Rav Kook says that in what way was the second temple greater than the first? In what way was the second temple remarkable? He says the second temple, the light of Am Yisrael went out and engulfed the nations of the world. Yotemi Baitrishon. And the remez, the hint to this event is in the Pasuk in Chagai Gadol Yekvot Abayit Acharon. Shezehu biyachas letikun umot ha'olam. What we described before, what we're speaking about the Rambam. Tikun umot ha'olam. Fixing the nations of the world. How do you fix them? You have to get them to appreciate the idea of Meshit. 
Mashiach, of the end of days, that something is happening. And that's the Pasuk. This is an idea that's found from the Maharal until modern day Hasidut. They asked all the Hasidish Rebbeim. You know Hasidish Rebbeim? They're the ones with funny clothes. Right? And, uh, you know, big big beards, funny clothes. Hasidish Rebbeim. The Hasidish Rebbeim said, What are we doing here? Here meaning, they said in the diaspora. We would say, Why is there a diaspora? Why did it take 2,000 years to get out of the diaspora. How come after Chorban Baidri shown, it only took 50 years? 50 years they came back. Here we are after 2,000 years, we have a Medina in Eretz Israel for which we should all be eternally and daily thankful for, and still we're arguing about. Well, what, should I live here or should I live there? Should I do this? Should I do that? Well, where am I going to make a living and where am I going to build a house? Or you know, this whole, the whole topic, you know, on a conceptual level seems like absolute nonsense. You, know, you talk to people and you don't know what they're talking about. You say, here you have an opportunity. The opportunity in, in, in the last 2,000 years, this opportunity never came up and you could live in Eretz Yisrael like a person and you could choose to live in... New Jersey. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's hard to imagine. It's hard. It's hard to imagine. But that's what's happening. So here, Rav Cook follows in this tradition, where people said, "What were we doing in the diaspora for two thousand years? What were we doing here?" So one of the ways of resolving this question was to say, "We're here to spread the light." We're not here to be punished. I mean, most of the time that we spent in the diaspora, the years were good years. We produced this tremendous literature called Torah, Torah literature. We discussed, we read, wrote endless books, shelves upon shelves upon shelves of books written by, by Jews about Jewish things and Jewish ideas and Jewish hopes and Jewish values. What were we doing here? We were spreading the light. That's what the Maharal said, and that's what Rav Kook said. What do you mean spreading the light? Why would you want to be spreading the light? Because as we said, in order to usher in the Messianic age, there has to be a certain amount of acceptance that the, uh, that the non-Jews, that the Umot Olam, make. And so that acceptance, that acceptance by the world started with, uh, with uh, Christianity, with Islam, but it continues through Am Yisrael. It continues through Am Yisrael, educating, teaching, being, spreading, spreading the light, spreading the light throughout the, throughout the world. And that's what Rav Kook, that's what Rav Kook shares with us, that Umota Olam on what kept us back. Because even though we're, we're ready to go back to Eretz Yisrael, but we are not finished with our job. The job has not yet been done. You know that Rav Nachman of Braslav, Rav Nachman of Braslav took a trip to Eretz Yisrael. Nobody knows why exactly. He went to Tzvat and went to Tveri. He got to Tveri, he turned around and he went home. He was here a very short time. 
And so people say, well, they don't understand. I mean, what was Rav Nachman doing? Why did he leave and then come back? I mean, so I always say, I was, I don't know if I'm right. I mean, I'm excusing myself, but I, mean, I think it's a nice thought, so I'll share it with you. Rav Nachman said, Rav Nachman said, the Mashiach has got to come. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the Mashiach. So Rav Nachman said, I'll go to Eretz Yisrael. So he went to Eretz Yisrael and surprisingly, no one came with him. There were no big crowds that came with Rav Nachman. So he turned around and he said, I guess we're not ready. I guess the time has not yet come. I better go back to where I came from and try to educate, try to educate the people who I left behind so that they will understand where they have to come. So he had this, this double valence, right? The Jews have to educate the non-Jews, the Rota Olam, that's what Rav Kook said. And then the Jews have to educate themselves. They have to understand. So the, the, Rav Kook says, you understand, if you look in history, how much positive effect the Jewish people had throughout these, these, uh, these years on the world. On the world, and yes, it makes a difference if there's a Jewish Nobel Prize winner or not. It makes a difference. Because it says something about being Jewish and about the effect that Jewishness can have, can have on the world. So maybe the Pasuk in Haggai refers to the fact that unlike Bayat Rishon, when Nebuchadnezzar came and he built a daik, and the daik was a kind of a, a wall that separated Am Yisrael from the nations of the world. The Babylonians didn't want to become Jewish. They didn't want to share the Torah. They didn't want to become part of the larger picture so that what they actually destroyed was not just the building called the Beit HaMikdash but they actually destroyed the hope of a bit of unity in the world whereas in Bayit Sheni even though the building was not as impressive and the setup was not as remarkable and the miracles <coughs> were missing. The Aron HaKodesh, the Aseret brought were not there. In spite of all that, it f seems that in the interaction between the Jewish people and the Greeks, and then the Jewish people and the Romans, it was not just what they did to us, but it was the influence that we had on them. We taught them something about Kavod, as Haggai said. Kavod is something that is a remarkable thing. And so the Abu Draham, Abu Draham says, you know, that it may be that Asara B'Tevet is the most important of all the days. Because Asara B'Tevet is the day that leads to Yemot Mashiach, that leads to some kind of interactive principle between Am Yisrael, between Am Yisrael and Umot HaOlam. And so I think also Asra uh, B'Tevet enables us perhaps to think about ourselves in this world, which sometimes seems to be a little bit oppressive and offensive. I think we have to work to make the dream of Bayat of the Kavod of Bayat to come true. I know that 
we have difficulties. And there are real problems. And even though day to day we might prefer to try to ignore them, there is no doubt that they exist. Nevertheless, we have a long-standing obligation to spreading the light, to making it possible for the nations of the world to be more accepting of the light of the Torah and about the future of Am Yisrael. And while it is true that we are uh, beleaguered, in a sense, and we have to kind of watch our flanks all the time, we also have an obligation to be better, to be better than, to be more filled with the light than others, to be more hopeful about, uh, about the future. And that may be the message of the Sarabate Vait. All the best. <laughs>